Open up to John. Uh, chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. I am really excited about this study. We will be in this gospel most of this year. Um, there are 40, so far 41 weeks uh, to get through this is what I have plotted out, and uh, I'm going to try to stick to that as best we can. Uh, we may add one here or there, but that's where we'll be for the, the majority of, tw- of 2022. Um, a few years ago, I, I've told you before um, many times uh, about how I, I traveled to Nepal, the country of Nepal, to preach and teach over there and train pastors, um, some very memorable times. But every time I would go on those trips, we would fly. I lived in Virginia at the time, so we would drive up to Washington, D.C., and then we would fly from D.C. to Doha, uh, Qatar, or Qatar. I never know exactly how to say it. It's where they're hosting the World Cup this year. But it's a small uh, Muslim country, a little peninsula right in the, the Persian Gulf there. Um, And we would always fly through there. That was the connection point to get to Kathmandu, Nepal. And then we would fly back through Qatar and stay there. Uh, Most of the time we had a long layover, maybe 12, 13 hours. Sometimes we'd leave the airport, sometimes we wouldn't. But the airport is pretty amazing. Um, Some of those small Muslim countries are oil rich and Qatar or Qatar is no exception. It is very wealthy. There's lots of beautiful buildings there. The airport is magnificent. It's huge, expansive, and we would always have a layover, and so we'd spend a lot of time in the airport there. And this little country uh, is in the Arabian Sea there, or in the Persian Gulf, um, maybe I should say, and it touches Saudi Arabia on the south, uh, and then it's just across the Persian Gulf from Iran. Um, uh, Dubai is just across the water as well, to try to give you some idea of the sort of countries that are surrounding uh, the little country of Qatar. So we'd be in the the airport, and this one particular time, I remember walking through the airport, and I noticed there was a gate of people loading up and getting ready to go on a plane, and this particular gate was headed to Tehran, Iran. And if I'm not mistaken, there was another gate where people were loading up and heading to Kabul, Afghanistan. And I think there was also one to Baghdad. And you can't get a lot of flights, passenger flights from the U.S. to any of those places. In fact, I don't think there are any passenger flights going from the U.S. to those places. And it struck me as I was walking through how unique of a situation this was. I had this very acute perception that this airport was a gateway to places that I couldn't get to from my home country. I mean, you could get almost anywhere in this airport. And that's true of most major airports, right? And there's a certain part of me that loves that about being in an airport. Um, It feels like something's happening and like there's possibilities and you can get to any number of places from all sorts of locations from where you are, from this building that you're in. And that particular, that fascination that I kind of have with airports and air travel was highlighted that day as I looked around and saw all these different locations. And I thought about these people that are loading up in this gate or just a few feet away from me and they're going somewhere that I do not have access to. My passport won't get me into those countries. And that was a, a really unique thing for me to experience. And anytime you go to an airport, even good old DTW right up here, right? You are opening the door to a building where there are hundreds, if not thousands, of possible locations and destinations that you can end up just from being in one building, lots of times in one room, a big room that you're in. 
Now today we're going to begin studying the Gospel of John. And here's why I'm talking about airports in this way. There are hundreds and probably thousands of insights and applications and doctrinal points that you can learn from this book. It has been studied, it has been analyzed, broken down, details have been pulled out of it. There are, there's a whole lot we can learn from this book, and rightfully so. But before we can begin exploring all of the possibilities that are here, we have to enter the lobby, which is what one author called John 1, 1 through 18. He said this is the lobby to the entire gospel of John. You have to go into this room first before you can get anywhere else. You have to go into this room and you have to get your bearings as to what you're going to study and what you're going to find out in this gospel. If you go into an airport for the first time and you haven't been in there before, one of the best things you can do is find a map of the airport where all the different gates are. And then you find out if there's a Starbucks near your gate. And you go there, right? Well, that's one of the best things you can do to get your bearings as you enter into the airport so you know which direction you need to go. And that's exactly what John 1, 1 through 18 is. It's the prologue, as Dom mentioned when he read this. It's the introduction. It's the lobby to the book. And this section of the book is going to lay out for us the major components to the book. Everything that you're going to find, big picture in John, is found here. It's prepared for us in a very short, succinct summary here. John is prepping us for what we need to look for, for the major themes that we're going to find here. And I think you can summarize the big picture of this whole gospel with our title for this sermon series, See the Son and Believe for Life. What I'm talking about is believing for the gift of eternal life, not believing for your entire life, although those go together. One goes with the other, right? So seeing the Son and believing for life, I think, are the two major pieces of this. John is one of, one of the biblical authors that actually tells us what he wrote this gospel for. And you can find this in John 20, 30, and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there's our purpose statement. And if you pair that with John 1.18, which you probably have your Bible open, I want you to look down the very end of the prologue or the lobby the introduction here, look what it says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so John, by putting the beginning and the end of this gospel together, is saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the Son. We're going to put him on display. His glory will be visible to you through this gospel, through the signs that are here, through the presentation of his person and of his teaching See the Son. When you see the Son, you see the Father. And when you see the Son, believe Him. Receive Him. Trust that He is who He says He is and believe in the work that He has done and that will result in eternal life for you. See the Son and believe for life. And so you put those two together and I think that's what you get in this gospel. 
Jesus reveals God, who God is to us through his works, through his signs, through his teaching, through his death, through his resurrection, all of that. And that is meant to foster faith in the reader. That's the end goal. So this week and next week, I want to enter into this lobby and spend a little bit of time looking at the map and finding out what we're going to discover in this gospel, the gospel of John. So here's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. Four glimpses of the word who has become flesh. Four glimpses of the word who became flesh. And then this is not on the screen, but I'll add in here. These glimpses prepare us to really see him. They prep us so that we have eyes to see what John is going to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one of these glimpses, it's short, but it is rich, is where we're going to be this morning in verses 1 through 5. And this glimpse is the identity of the word. Now, if you're new to the Bible, which I don't think very many of you are this morning, but that's okay, we'll recap a little bit. There are four separate and unique gospel accounts Each one of these is different, and each one of them is similar in that they all tell the story of the ministry, the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah, Israel's promised one and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They all have that focus to them, but they're all made up and written in very distinct and different ways. The other three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin their stories of the Messiah in similar ways. They start with either the birth of Jesus, his genealogy, his background, and then his birth to Mary and to Joseph. Or if they don't begin there, the Gospel of Mark begins immediately with his ministry, with the the work of John the Baptist. He goes right into explaining how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, the voice in the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And even Matthew and Luke and even John will go pretty quickly into the ministry of John the Baptist, and you'll see that. Now, John's gospel will go to his ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist, but John's account starts somewhere that none of the others do. His account starts much further back than any of the others. Look at the beginning of verse 1. In... The beginning was the Word. Now, when you read this, you are meant to immediately go back to the very first words in the Bible. John intends to evoke the creation account in Genesis 1. And what he's doing when he says, in the beginning was the Word, is he's placing the Word right there at the moment of creation. But as you think about the word being there at the moment of creation, it's also very, very important that you understand the word, and there's a reason I'm using the designation the word and not Jesus Christ, will get there eventually when John does. But he he places this person, this individual, the word at creation, but it's important that you understand the word was not a created being. He did not come into existence at the moment of creation. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. He was there already at the moment of creation. Verse 2, you'll see, is a recap of verse 1. And we'll get to the rest of verse 1 in just a second here. 
But what he points out is that the word was already there with God at the moment of creation in the beginning. And so the beginning here, what John is talking about is pointing us back to creation. But John wants to push our thoughts even further back. He wants us to go back before anything was made. That's where he wants to begin his gospel. And that will set the agenda for the rest of what we read in this gospel. So what was going on in that time before time was created? Before anything came into existence? What was happening? Who was there? What was going on? Look at the rest of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two very important statements that we need to unpack here. The identity of the Word is that He was with God and that He was God. First, let's talk about the Word being with God. This is a statement of relationship. The Word was with God in a close and a personal relationship. We find out later in this gospel that this is a deep and a loving commitment and joyous relationship to one another. If you glance down at chapter 1 and verse 18, which we read a few minutes ago, look there again. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. And you probably have a note there that says he's in his bosom. This is close. They're together in a an intimate and a personal relationship that is filled with love and joy. And how do I know it's filled with love and joy? John 17, later on in this gospel, where the Word is praying to the Father, says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's this picture before the world exists of the Father and the Son enjoying and glorifying one another in close relationship, looking at the character of the other and delighting in all the beauty that they see. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that would be us, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was happening before anything was created? That's where John starts and he says, the Father and the Son existed before the foundation of the world in a relationship of love and joy where they continually rejoiced in the glory and the beauty of the other. One author put it like this. In himself, and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit. The boundless life that God lives in himself, at home, within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds, is perfect. It is complete inexhaustibly full and infinitely blessed. This is the foundation of everything else. It starts here with this relationship, with this love between a father and a son through the Spirit. This is the most important relationship in all of existence. 
Too often, I will say, we begin our thinking about salvation and about the world with ourselves, don't we? We start here. How does this apply to me? How can I make myself the center of everything? And we do it naturally because of our sinful brokenness. And too often we only find value in something because it relates to me and because it puts me at the center today. The doctrine of the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son is immensely practical. But you have to recognize this as being what it is and dive into it and start with God and start with this joyous relationship. And then the benefits to your life, the reshaping of your perspective on what matters and what's significant and your place in the world will start to fall into place. You have to grasp everything or that everything starts here. That's why John starts here. This is what he's calling us to do, to reorient the gospel, the plan of salvation, the work of Christ within this relationship. Another author put it like this, at the center of the New Testament stands not our religious experience, not our faith or repentance or decision, however important these are, but a unique relationship between Jesus and the Father. And so, by telling us that the Word was with the Father before creation, John is telling us of this relationship and he's saying the Word is distinct from the Father. And you need to get that word distinct here. There's a difference. And so as you're reading this, notice he's not said the words Jesus Christ yet. And so you're asking, who is this word? What is this, maybe you would ask, that was with the Father? And you can't stop here in this relationship. You can't stop with the distinction between the Word and the Father because you have to go on to the end of verse 1. Look what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have to move to this second part, this second important piece of this. He was with God, and at the same time, he was God. And so to properly understand his identity and to properly read the rest of this gospel, you've got to get this second part. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard that this should be translated a God. That's something that Jehovah's Witnesses or maybe Mormons would teach. And some of these cults would say, you read this to say a God, because in Greek, the article is not there. And so you read it, a God. And so what they do with that is they simply attribute divinity to the word, and they make the word less than fully divine and less than equal with the Father. Now, John, John here does not choose the Greek word that communicates just simply divinity. He chooses the Greek word here that is, means God. And there's a re he could have chosen the word that means divinity, but he didn't do that. And he chose the word that means God. And the only way to properly understand this is for John to be saying that the word is of the same essence and is equal with 
God the Father. In fact, had John inserted the article here, which those cults are complaining that he didn't, and so they read it as a God, had he inserted the article here, he would have been saying that the Father is the Word. And he would have been fully equating these two, and that would have skewed what he's saying here. And there would be no distinctions within the Godhead. And so for him to say the the Word was with God and make a distinction and then say the Word was the God doesn't make any sense. And so the proper way and the only way to faithfully read this is to say that the Word is equal and of the same essence as the Father. And in fact, John goes on in verse 3 to make it clear that the Word is equal with the Father. Look there. Verse 2 is a recap of verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Put this in the cultural context. If you're a Jew, you understand there to be one true God, and you could tell that he was the one true God. How? Because he's the creator. That was what defined him. He's the sole creator of everything. And so to say that the word was the agent of creation, that all things came into existence through him, was to say the word is fully God, 100% God. He made all things, and nothing would have come into existence without him creating it. And so John is writing here, in the context of Jewish monotheism, right? And what that means is Jews believe there was one true God, the creator of all. And so he's got to teach who Jesus Christ is and explain that in that context without saying there are two gods. And so he does that here by making these two vital statements. The word was with God and the word was God. So what this means is whoever this word was and is existed in a close personal relationship before creation was distinct from the Father and yet at the same time is of the the same essence as the Father and is equal with the Father as the sole creator of everything that exists. We know he's God because he's the creator. And so that gives us an initial understanding certainly of the Trinity and of who this word is. But why does John choose this title for this person? Why does he call him the Word? Because we don't read that title very many, if any, other places in the New Testament. So why does he start here? And why does he call him the Word? Well, John has already taken our thoughts back to Genesis, hasn't he? He's already taken our thoughts back to the creation and the moments of creation and before creation, and he'll do that again in verses 4 and 5. But in order to read and understand what John is saying here, it makes sense for us to also go back to the Old Testament to fill in the background and understand why he uses this title. And there's several things we find about God's word in the Old Testament. And I'll give you three of them the most important, I think. What do we find out about God's word in the Old Testament? God's word creates, God's word reveals, and God's word heals and redeems. First, 
Let's talk about him creating through his word, which he's already said about the word here in John 1. But we find this out right away in Genesis. What happens over and over again in Genesis chapter 1? God speaks and creation comes into existence. All of it happens by his word. Psalm 33 and verse 6 affirms this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God performs actions through his word. He creates and he accomplishes what he wants to accomplish through his word. Isaiah 55, which some commentators think is the background for John 1 says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God acts through speaking. He creates and he does what he wants to do through his word. Next, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself through his word. He creates and he reveals. What happens? His word comes to prophets and it it opens up to them understanding and insight into how things are, into reality, into how to live. His word reveals. Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You can even see this in the very first verses of the prophet Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then you obviously see this in John 1.18. We see who God is as the word reveals the Father to us. Finally, God's word brings redemption. Psalm 107 and verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And then there's one passage that I just think is particularly clear on this. Isaiah chapter 2. And I'm going to put it on the screen in a second, but let me prep you for reading it. Isaiah 2 is a a promise and a a prophecy of Isaiah looking forward to the future, and he's anticipating the day when everything is going to be set right. How is that going to happen? How are things going to be set right? It happens through his word. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between two nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's interesting here in this passage where he talks about the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem. In this and in other passages, it's almost like the word is a person. 
It's like he's personalized it and sent his word out. And it's interesting in this passage, the word goes out from Jerusalem. Where was God's original word given to the nation of Israel? Not Jerusalem, Sinai. And so this is different. The word goes out to the nations from Jerusalem here. And so I think all of these texts are in the background for John as he describes this individual who was with God and who was God as the word. He's the creator of all things. He's the revealer of God's purposes. And he's the redeemer and the healer of those in need. And so what better way to summarize all three of those than what he does in verse 4? Look there. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, I think if you're, if you're reading this for the first time, you're familiar with Genesis, you would have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 again. Knowing that John already wants us to read this in light of Genesis 1, you see the life and the light coming here, and you're, you've got to go back to the beginning of creation. And so there's a, there's a pretty clear link here, I think, to God's creative power in breathing life into Adam in the garden, but also into giving life to everything that exists. And so the word Everything owes their physical existence to the word. In him is life. But in the Old Testament, remember, physical existence, just being able to move and to breathe, is not the sum total of how that word life is used. There's a much fuller and richer experience of life that God wants us to have as he promises in the Old Testament. True life in the Old Testament involves knowing God and walking in close relationship with him. It's not just being physically alive. The life that God intends for human beings is to be one where they're living to their maximum flourishing wholeness, and that means knowing him and relating to him in close and personal relationship, in a covenant relationship. The tree of life was planted in the garden and Adam and Eve were to eat of that tree as they obeyed the Lord's word and were to live in close proximity to God and in relationship with him. That was life. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. You know this passage. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, speaking to Israel, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Life is not just continuing to exist, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To truly live as God intends means to live by the very word of God in covenant relationship with him. John 10, and verse 10 even points this out. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's a wholeness and a flourishing element to the life that Jesus has for us. And it's not just physical existence. Now you remember also in the garden what happens. Adam and Eve 
choose to defy God and death comes to them. But the death that came to them wasn't just physical death. What was it? It was separation from a relationship with God. They were exiled from the garden. That was the death that came to them. They were cut off from close and personal fellowship with him, which is the definition of true life. They're cut off from life and light. And the source of life and light, according to verse 4, is the word. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. Now, when you, you see this metaphor of light here, I think you have to go back to Genesis 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. First act of creation here, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. In him was life, John 1, 4, then verse 5, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now in John, there's an entirely different sort of darkness that human beings experience, and not the physical darkness that he's talking about. John 3 describes this in a little more detail, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so the word who is life and life abundantly and a flourishing life and life of fullness brings light into the world by creating, revealing, and redeeming, and he will not be overcome by the darkness. Now, these five opening verses that we've just walked through here, these verses are critical for how you and I study and read this gospel because they give us the identity of the Word who is the subject matter of this whole book. But I do want you to notice here, we haven't encountered the name Jesus Christ yet, And John sort of buries the lead here because we don't get to the name Jesus Christ until we get all the way down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But John opens the way he does here for a very specific reason. He wants us to walk into the lobby and he wants us to understand the identity of the word. This is not just a man, Jesus Christ. It's not just a a human being. You're not going to understand my gospel. You're not going to understand the works that he does, the signs that he does. You're not going to understand what's in the background, the relationship between him and his father. You have to connect verses 1 and 5 and the background of why he uses the word in the Old Testament, all of that to Jesus Christ, or you won't read this gospel properly. So these words tell us how to read it rightly. We are to read this and these stories about Jesus and his teaching and his revelation of who he is. We're to read all of that as if the second person of the Godhead, 
the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the one who created all things, as if that person who existed before anything else in a loving relationship with the Father and in no need of anything, not lonely, not wishing for someone else to be around, but completely happy and in perfect joy and relationship, that person, we're to read this gospel as if that person came and became flesh and came to the earth and took on the form of a human being and died and rose from the dead for us. That's how you have to read this gospel. The whole rest of it is to be read in light of that, and it's read to foster belief in the one who's reading. As you read this with this background in mind, it will engender and build up faith in you, in this individual. And as you read the rest of the gospel in light of this, treasures start to be opened up to you. It's like you're using the right tools to dig and you can find the diamonds that are there. One verse that I think opens up when you read in light of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the life, the abundant life that he brings is John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. It's not just existing forever. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the definition of life, and this opens up to us as we understand these first few verses of John's gospel. See the Son, believe in Him, and the glorious fellowship between the Father and the Son through the Spirit, the love that has existed forever between them will be opened up to you. You will be invited into that loving relationship to experience that. Same author we quoted earlier said it like this. The good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and given us a share in that fellowship. I mean, the termination point of the gospel is not just I get to go to heaven when I die. It's much bigger than that. And John says to read all of this, to read about the death, the life, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in light of this. This book opens up the dynamics of the life of the triune God to you and to me. And the love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that we can experience as we believe. We'll look at it next week, but I love verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? To become children of God. Man, you read that differently when you understand the word was with God and the word was God and the relationship that existed between them through the spirit in all eternity. You and I get invited through faith to be children of God, to be loved in a unique way by the Father. And so John is inviting us to walk into the lobby, to look at the map and see where we're going. And that's what he's going to do through this passage this week and next week, and then through the whole gospel as we study it. So I'm excited to look further at this opening prologue here, and then we'll get into the rest of the gospel in the coming weeks. But it should be a good year as we study the Son, 
see the Son and believe, hopefully, for life as we study the Gospel of John. Let me pray. Father, we're just amazed. Lord Jesus, it's astounding. The gift of grace that we have in your word, the way that your word opens up the possibility of a relationship with you to us, something that we lost through our sinfulness and our first parents, but now has been restored to human beings through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the word becoming flesh. And so I pray, Lord, as we study this book this year, that you would increase our understanding, that you would increase our joy, that we would delight in the grace that we have received and the love that we see here in this gospel for the world. And I pray that you would build up our faith. Give us a faith that is firm and is fixed and cannot be broken in you and in who you are. Thank you for the work you're going to do by the Holy Spirit as he directs our attention to you. It's in Christ's name we pray.